Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. There's an old story told of an older couple having dinner in a restaurant, and the wife sees another couple across the way, just about their age, sitting in a booth. She sees the husband sitting close to his wife on the same side of the booth, his arm around her, he's whispering things in her ear, and she's smiling and blushing after all of those decades of marriage together. He's gently rubbing her shoulder, touching her hair. The woman turns to her husband and says, look at that couple over there. Look how close that man is to his wife. Look at how he's talking to her. Look at how sweet he's being to her. Why don't you ever do that? Her husband looks up from his Caesar salad, glances over to the next booth, as most guys would do, like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Then he turns to his wife and he says, Honey, I don't even know that woman. (laughs) Today, we focus on the golden rule. I rarely do one verse scriptures, I usually do huge, long passages, but this one is a message in and of itself. Matthew 7, verse 12, toward the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words, do unto others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Variations of this saying up to this time had been around in Jesus' time. Centuries before Jesus, there was this version of the golden rule that had gone through different philosophers and poets and world leaders at the time. This was not new when Jesus spoke it, except he did something very different with the wording. For instance, let's look, the book of Tobit, there's this passage in which the great aged Tobias teaches his son all the necessary things for living life. One of his maxims is this, what thou thyself hatest to no man do. Or consider the words of Confucius, who in replying to, I'm horrible with Chinese, Zhu Kang, I guess that's how you pronounce that, T-S-Z-E, Kung, K-U-N-G, who asked him, is there one word which may serve as a rule of practice for one's life? Confucius replies, reciprocity. And then he goes further to explain what he means by that. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And one final one from Epictetus who condemned slavery on this principle. Listen to what he says. What you avoid suffering yourselves, seek not to inflict on others. So it sounds very similar, doesn't it? Except it's subtly different. Instead of actually wording it in the negative, don't do to others what you wouldn't have done to you, Jesus says, do unto others what you would have them do to you. 
We're going to be unpacking this today through the practice of respect. The first week of this month, we talked about the practice of patience, and we talked about one of the practices of patience is learning to wait, the practice of waiting. Last week, we talked about the practice of listening, and what is really listening to one another and listening to God. This week, we're talking about the practice of respect, which ties into this art of living out patience as a fruit of the Spirit in one's life. This passage, I think, really unmasks this idea of respect in a very important way. So the key point this morning is this, the practice of patience requires the respectful treatment of others. How easy it to, is, is it to respect others who are disrespectful? It's hard, isn't it? How easy is it to respect others who are respectful? It's easy. How easy is it to refrain from doing something to somebody rather than to do something for somebody that you would have done for you? See, the whole idea behind this is we are to be active participants in doing the good around us, even if it's not returned. Isn't that kind of the idea of this godly aspect of respect? So what does it take? What does respect involve? There are three things. Respect involves doing what's right and not just for refraining from doing what's wrong. Doing what's right, not just refraining from doing what's wrong. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14, Paul writes these words. Don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. That'll preach in and of itself. That's not what this topic's about, but don't let sin control you. This is something that God said to Cain before he killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Do not let it control you. What is sin? Anything that goes against God's desires, will, or plan. Well, what is God's desires, will, or plan? We need look no further than the word of God. The Bible. So he says, don't let sin control you the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. Verse 13, don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, instead, give yourselves what? Completely to God. How much is completely? Uh, <laughs> those of you at home and online today, I know you couldn't hear the groans, but when I said that, everybody went, oh. When you give yourself completely to God, it should be a joyous thing. Sorry, I know you didn't mean it that way, but I'm just playing around. It seems fun today, and you guys don't seem to want to be here. Anywho, um, I'm just kidding. I love each and every one of you. I'm teasing you. Give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead but you now have new life. So he's speaking to people who are in the church. Give yourselves completely to God. You were dead, but now you're alive in Christ. I see a lot of dead churches. And if we're not careful, we become that way too. Do you know what I mean? And let me, let me, let me, um, you remember the show, I'm dating myself here, Weekend at Bernie's? 
How many of you, those of you who are much younger than me, you're like, I have no clue what he's talking about. Oh, it's on Netflix right now, I think. Anyway, weekend at Bernie's. Bernie's the boss at the vacation home. I forget the whole plot, but I know Bernie is dead. And his two uh, subordinates who were there actually animate Bernie to keep him looking like he's alive. Okay? There are churches in our culture today that are animated to look alive, but spiritually are dead. I don't want this church to be a weekend at Bernie's experience. That's why when we look at the Word of God, we look at it with as much integrity and honesty as we can. And the Word of God can be very offensive to a culture that's not living by it. Okay? Is respect then not broaching subjects that are difficult to talk about? No, that's actually disrespect. True respect, true honor, true love is actually speaking the truth in love. It's doing the right thing and not just abstaining from doing the wrong thing. Do you catch this? So, he says, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. What part of your body do you use for the glory of God? Your eyes? How about your ears? What you listen to, what you take into yourself, what you see, what you what do you what do you put your hands to do? Are they clicking on things they shouldn't be? Touching things they shouldn't? Are they acting in ways they shouldn't act? By throwing hand signals at somebody on the roadway? Do you get what I'm talking about, right? He says, let your whole body. He's not just talking about sexual parts of your body, though that it's included there. Your whole body, head to toe, inside and out, be used to glorify God, to be an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Verse 14, listen to this. Sin is no longer your master. Some of you need to tell yourselves that. But I can't, I keep giving in and doing things. I keep going back to the same old feeding trough of slop. Sin is not your master. You either control it or it controls you. You are no longer, you no longer live under the requirements of the law, Paul says. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace through Jesus Christ, who came to set the captives free. Biblical scholar and author Michael Green writes, you can legislate against people doing to others what they would not want done to themselves. I don't want somebody to murder me. You can actually write a law that says, murder in different offenses will get you in trouble, right? You can legislate against that. You can legislate against certain sexual crimes. It's harder if not impossible, to legislate that somebody respects somebody else. Am I right? It's harder to legislate that you, you give out of what you have so that others can be blessed too. It's hard to legislate for you to encourage somebody else when they're discouraged. It's harder to legislate to be nice to someone and kind to someone who is not nice or kind to you. 
You can legislate against the wrong things, but you can't legislate the right things. Do you see what Jesus has done in one sentence? That had been heard for generations by multiple different people, groups, and nations across the globe. Do to others what you would have them do to you. All of the law and the prophets are in this. There's another one too. Didn't he say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. So respect and love are mutual. Ephesians 5, 21, and you read further. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, respect your husbands. Submit to them in all things. We don't like that. That's misogynistic and sexist. And, but do you realize love and respect are two sides of the same coin? Love and respect are mutual submission items to one another. When you read Husbands Love Your Wives as Christ Loved the Church, and what did he do? Gave himself for her. In what way? Now, obviously, the, the, the obvious one is, oh, he died on the cross. He's willing to take a bullet for his wife. He's willing to, yes, but there's more. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus live his life? What examples did he set? Who did he go to? How did he live? Did he ever lord over anybody? He didn't come to serve, but, or he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And wives, respect your husbands. This isn't, and I do this in marriages, weddings, a lot of times. We'll talk about this passage where we're unpacking this together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Well, what is that? Submission is not subservience. It's not groveling at the feet of another for mercy. I've seen some, this is not a marriage sermon, by the way. It's just a part of this. Because it is the, the clearest example of how this is fleshed out. Our closest relationships oftentimes get sacrificed because we let down our guard so much that we can become obnoxious to one another in marriage. Ask my wife. She's on the cameras today. I'm a jerk sometimes. Yes, it's true. Who laughed at that? <laughs> Patty, was that you? Yes, it was. Um, but it's true. And it, the sad thing is, I know when I'm being a jerk. Nobody has to tell me. And I'm not doing the way I would want done to me. I'm just royally peeved off. And I want to stick it to whoever, whoever I'm angry at. And it's easier to stick it to those you love because you know they're not going to reject you. It's harder to stick it to those you don't know if they will reject you or not. That's why we put on one face in the public eye and another one at home, oftentimes. Sorry, I'm way off in the weeds on this. The PowerPoint people who are running the slide are saying, this isn't even in his notes. You can legislate against people doing to others what they would want, would not want, what you would not want done to yourself. That's one of the ways of making a fair society, right? But you can never legislate 
to bring about what Jesus is teaching, that generous attitude of going out of your way to encourage the depressed, to forgive those who have wronged you, and to help the disadvantaged requires positive action and self-sacrificial action. You don't do that to fulfill some law. You do it only if the love of the kingdom of God burns in your heart so brightly you cannot contain it. It's, it's one thing to say, I must not hurt anybody else. It's quite another to say, I must go out of my way to help them. The first could be fulfilled by an inaction. The second is only fulfilled by self-sacrificial love. Don't only do, don't, don't only refrain from doing what's wrong, do what is good. What would happen in society if the church truly took this scripture seriously? It would change the world. But we're afraid now. We've been put in our place. We've allowed society to dictate to the church how we should act, what is proper and cordial and politically correct. We haven't been given license to go out and be disrespectful. I see a lot of Christians on social media, so-called Christians, and I'm embarrassed. I'm horrifically and horribly embarrassed by the nature of what some people say on social media in the name of God and Jesus Christ. I'm almost 100% convinced that Jesus would never be on social media today. And if he was, his conversation would look very different. But that doesn't mean he would refrain from speaking the truth in love. That doesn't mean that he would not tell what is right and what is wrong. But he would do it in such a way as to bridge the gap instead of polarizing and causing a wider chasm. Do what's right, not only refrain from doing what's wrong. What happens when the golden rule is taken out of context? See, the golden rule is meant for a faith-based people, for a Christ-centered people. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. If you're not a Christian, <laughs> take that. What, what, what would that look like? Well, I want, uh, if you're sexually perverted, you would then take that to a very polarized, sexually perverted way, wouldn't you? Well, I want to... I want others to do to me what I want to do to them. Or think of other things. I mean, think, think of any other context as you can think of. See, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, can never be used outside of the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was never meant that way. That's why when Jesus said it, he's saying it to the people who are around him, who are religious Jewish people, who he's trying to help understand the heart of God, what the heart of God is and is all about. Is this, is this making sense, or is, am I missing, missing the base here? 
Listen to what George Buchanan says. When the golden rule is taken out of context, it does not automatically fulfill the demands of the law and the prophets. The thief, for instance, who wanted more opportunities to steal would obey this command to help others find more opportunities to steal. But by doing so would break one of the Ten Commandments, wouldn't he? There are many other such situations because this law depends upon the subjective desires of the individual. But that is not what the message is for those governed by the Sermon on the Mount. That's why Jesus says this in the great Sermon on the Mount. He has already given them a litany of everything that they should be doing and should not be doing. The Sermon on the Mount is a very hard-to-chew-on piece of literature And then we get to the end of it. Now he's saying, I'm basically going to give you my whole message in a nutshell. This would be his key key statement. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Basically, everything I've just told you fits into this one sentence. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. I say if you commit adultery by lusting after, or if you lust after someone, you committed adultery with them. I say you shouldn't murder, but if you hate a brother... In your heart, you've basically murdered him, right? He shouldn't divorce. He goes through all of these. Do one to others. How would this change relationships? I, get, I, I meet with people a lot who are struggling in their relationships, not just marital relationships, friendships, those kind of things. You know, one of the common denominators and common things in broken relationships is what the other person isn't doing. Do you catch that? Almost in 23 years of being a pastor, I hear they don't do this for me. They don't treat me. They don't love me. They don't act this way. If they really love me, they would. How would relationships change if we did to them what we would want done to us as believers in Christ? That's the best marriage advice I can give anybody. That's the best friendship advice I can give anybody. That's the best parental advice I can give to parents of adult children who may be estranged from each other. Why don't you do to them what you would have done to you? And it may not happen in the first instance because maybe the relationship is so broken it needs more time. See, we are quick to give up too easily when things don't go our way. But if we're truly in it for the other person and we're truly in it to pour into them, it elevates the individual to a place of importance in our lives rather than trying to suck from them something that I think I need from them. Do the right thing, don't just refrain from doing the wrong thing. The second thing is respect involves considering the good in others rather than expecting the bad. (laughs) That's a hard one. We love to stereotype. We love to uh, uh, profile just by the way somebody looks. And and there, there is truth, there is some truth to stereotypes. But the reality is we weren't called as believers in Christ to go around stereotyping people. We were called to go around loving people. You don't stereotype people into the kingdom of God. You love them into the kingdom of God. You don't judge people into the kingdom. You provide an open hand. You don't turn a blind eye to the sin in somebody's life. 
But the truest act of love is reaching out to a sinful person and saying, I know the one who could set you free. That's more than just love, it's respect. Respect involves considering the good and not just expecting the bad. Roger, actually, Philippians 2, verse 3, 3 and 4. One of my favorite passages, Philippians 2. In verse 3, it says, Paul says, Don't be selfish and don't try to impress others. Don't be selfish and don't try to impress. That's a sermon in and of itself, too. What's it mean to not be selfish? Have you ever unpacked that? Selfishness is a focus on the self and what I want, what I expect, and what I desire without any care for what anybody else or what God desires. Selflessness is actually giving yourself to others because God has given so much to you. We are conduits of that grace, conduits of that love. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. And then here's, he says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take interest in others too. Um, over the past month, we've watched a Carrie Newhoff podcast or video in our board meeting and in our staff meeting. And Carrie Newhoff is a Christian pastor who's now become a leadership guru podcaster, so on and so forth. And, and he talks about what time are you giving to others and what time are you giving to yourself? We each are unique in how we are created, our, our multifaceted personality types, those kind of things. But what are we doing to look out for the interests of others as well as our own interests? What does that look like? How, you have 168 hours in a week. How do you use those hours? He says when you say you don't have time to do something... It's not that you don't have it. You have the same amount of hours in a day that anybody else does. How do you use the time you've been given? Well, Brandon, you don't understand. I have to do this at this place, this at this place, this at this place. So you're telling me your calendar rules you instead of you ruling your calendar. But I get it. It's easy to get sucked into that. I do it too. When I'm taking interest in others... It requires me sometimes to step outside of my calendar. I might be going about my daily routines and then I'm, I'm interrupted by something or someone. Some interruptions do necessarily require my attention. But you know what I often do if I'm not careful? As I look at interruptions as frustrations even if they're people, because i got a schedule to finish. I've got things to check off my list. And I don't necessarily take interest in others when they become interruptions. Instead, I'm trying to, okay, how much more can I, you got to hurry this along, right? I'm guilty of this. I'm sure none of you are, but I'm guilty of this. Sometimes God likes to put little interruptions into our day and into our schedules to see if we're truly still living for him rather than for ourselves. And yes, even as a pastor, I can get on autopilot and just go through the motions if I'm not careful. And I've done it. 
and I'm not proud of it. Because no pastor should ever do that. But just as no pastor should ever do that, no believer in Christ should ever do that either. Roger Hahn writes, Jesus says that living in consideration of others sums up the law and the prophets. And this begs the question, he writes, that each of us should be asking ourselves, what do I hope and expect from others? If I expect the worst from others, I'm not disappointed when they fail me. But if I consider the good in others and they fail me, I become disappointed. That's a human, natural human reaction. But what kind of life is it to live to think of others in a good way or to think of others in a bad way? It's, let's be honest, it's, it's a miserable existence to always expect the worst from everybody, isn't it? You've heard me talk about my stepdad and uh, he was a miserable guy. Never heard him say a good thing about anybody. He, he always expected the worst. He raised me <laughs> with a lot of good qualities. But in many ways, he also raised me to be suspicious of everyone. Yeah, you'll, you'll be duped if you're not careful. Don't expect a handout. Don't, and, and there was a lot of good positive stuff. I learned to be very independent and to take care of myself pull myself up by my own bootstraps, but I also learned to be distrusting from the very get-go. That's not a healthy existence. Do you know that if you're a believer in Christ, you're a citizen of God's kingdom? And as a citizen and an ambassador of God's kingdom, we represent one who is full of grace and truth and love and mercy, and we should be exhibiting that doesn't mean we should be foolish in how we trust, but it means we should trust. First and foremost, him, and secondly, others. When you lack trust in other individuals, there is no healthy relationship. Do you catch where I'm going with this? When you're always expecting the worst in somebody else, you're going to expect them to constantly be screwing up and failing you. So that way you're not disappointed. We weren't created that way. That's horrible. Go back to the marriage relationship again in this mutual respect. I trust my wife. I love her immensely. We've been together, married for 23 years as of this past June. And we've had struggles I mean, we haven't had this, this rose-colored glasses marriage experience. Stuff has hit the fan and splattered all over the walls before. Okay? And I'm just being blatantly honest. Two decades together has been wonderful. And it's been hard. Because she has a sinful nature and I have a sinful nature that oftentimes wars against us and rages this huge beast called pride within us that neither one of us wants to back down, especially when we know we're wrong. And we fight tooth and nail, never physically. Ask our kids, they are windows into the marriage of the Linhart home. Why do we say all of that? It's because I can get into the mindset that my wife doesn't love me or that she's not trustworthy 
when I get frustrated with her. If she loved me, she would. If she, if she really was in this for the right reasons, she would know that I would dot, 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 or that I need dot, dot, dot. But that's not how the way relationships or marriages work. Respect is expecting the best and not the worst in an individual. And then when you are let down or disappointed because the person you are respecting is not your God, your whole world doesn't come crashing down. When you keep relationships in proper perspective and you realize that my wife, my husband, my son or my daughter, my parent, my grandparent, my boss or whomever else in your life, they don't they are not to have that one place that God should have in your life. So that when they do disappoint you, when they don't measure up to your expectations, your trust isn't completely obliterated. Because you have one in whom you do trust that has his rightful place in your life. And you can weather those relational storms. But all too often I see us putting people on certain pedestals in our lives that is only reserved for God. And when that person screws up or messes up or doesn't live up to the expectations I have of them, not only is my respect gone, but I'm going to let them have it. Mutual respect is not expecting somebody to be something for you that they cannot be. And that's hard. I hate marriage books. I've read a million marriage books as a pastor. But there's one, and I don't truly care too much for the authors, but there's one called Love and War that I thought was phenomenal. And the one key insight I took away from that is... Your spouse is not the enemy. There is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. I would say your child is not the enemy. Your parent is not the enemy. Your boss is not the enemy. The one who has truly hurt you is not the enemy, but there is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And the only way to have authority and control and power over that enemy is to fight that enemy first. Because Jesus tells us to love our other enemies. Do you catch that? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He never tells us that we should respect only the respectable or love only the lovable. We are to love even our enemies. Paul in Philippians 2.3, consider others as better than yourselves. What does that mean? And I've said this to you before. I'm going to repeat it again like a broken record. Considering someone better than yourselves doesn't mean you consider yourself a worm or scum. Okay? If you were in Christ and Christ is in you and you were a believer in him and a follower of him, you are a child of God. Okay? 
What does it mean as a believer in Christ to be adopted as a son or a daughter into that family to have the rights of a son or a daughter of the Most High King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It means your royalty. Now, consider that passage. Don't think of yourselves better than others, but consider others better than you. All right, well, I'm a child of God. I've been afforded the rights to salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have eternal life in him. Now, I'm going to consider others as better than me. What does that do to the whole context of that? Do you think that lives might be changed if you considered others that way? Though they may not be children of God, they may be blatant atheists, but you're treating them with the honor and the respect due to each image bearer of God. It's tough. But Jesus mirrored this for us while he hung on the cross as he uttered these few words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Think of the honor and respect he was dignifying his, his executioners with, his betrayers with, through those words. In my human nature, I want others to go to hell who hurt me. But as an ambassador and a child of God, I want everyone to know the truth that can set them free from sin and death so that they can have eternal life. And so I will do what's necessary to reach them with the truth. The last thing is that respect involves lifting others up. It's very closely tied to the previous one I just did. Romans 15, verses 2 through 4. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Did you hear that? Okay, we could be like the religious leader who was being confronted, who, who confronted Jesus with this question. What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Luke, in, in the Luke's gospel. Well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, see, the religious leader knew he had been caught. Because he knew all the law and the commands hung on those two. He could not refute that. And so he's still trying to trip Jesus up. And he says, okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And this is where we get the good Samaritan parable. The Samaritan was one of the most despised people in the region to the Jewish people. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. It's like if you ever... I'm not advocating, I don't know where you stand on this, Harry Potter, but he was a, they were muggles, you know, <laughs> non-magic folk. <laughs> Anywho, um, come back with me. Uh, but the Samaritans, they had way back in their history, a part of the 10 northern tribes who would have been the nation of Israel, and then you have the nation of Judah. It's a big history lesson for another time. Regardless, they had compromised themselves so much that they began to intermarry with the pagan nations around them and adopt their cultural standards and their practices of worship. But the, but the kingdom of Judah, who really wasn't any better, but they think they were because they have the line of Jesus and David and, and okay, so they have that badge of honor. 
the, the, the ones that were the remnant of them who had come back into Jerusalem in Jesus' time hated the, Samaria, the Samaritans who lived in the region of Samaria, which was between the region of Galilee and the region of Judah. It was right in the middle. And so they hated them so much they wouldn't even walk through that territory. You know, if gas prices then what they are now, they would have gone straight through. But they went across the Jordan all the way back up to Galilee and the Galilee back down to Judah. They would avoid any contact whatsoever with the Samaritans. So, <coughs> who is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And he makes the Levite and the priest the bad guys. Jesus wasn't worried about offending other people. Do you understand? He was more concerned about speaking the truth in love. He knew that the only way to get through to some people is to turn the tables and show them the truth in a way that will hit them broadside. Now go to, go to Romans again. 15 verses 2 through 4. Who is my neighbor? Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. How many of you have ever pleased your neighbors because you want them to actually keep the leaves from blowing into your yard? You, you, oh, I'm going to bring them a pie. I'm gonna do. How many of you have tried to please others in order to get them to do something for you? Do you catch this? See, respect isn't giving something in order to get something in return. Do you understand? Respect is given regardless of if it's returned. Same thing with love. Each of us should please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Catch this. But as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If I read through the scripture, guess what? It seems like the good people are always getting the shaft. It's not fair. And again, I quote this often, John chapter 16, Jesus says, in this world you'll have troubles of many kind, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Do we give up on Jesus when other people treat us poorly? Do we decide to disrespect somebody because they're not respectful to us? Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Theologian and commentator John Whitmer writes, A Christian should not be self-centered but should be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. Pleasing others, however, is not an end in itself, but is for their good to build them up. This is the example that Christ left us. Even he did not please himself. He came to do the will of the Father in heaven who sent him. And he did it to please him. If we could get into our minds that we do because he first did for us. It's not like a give and take thing as much as it is, oh my goodness, how could I not give out of the abundance of what's been given me? 
It's a selfish thing to contain salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's a selfish thing to contain and close that away from everybody else. I use this analogy, and you've probably heard it before, but you've got the Sea of Galilee, which has an inlet and an outlet. It is a place teeming with life that has a lot of fishing that goes on in it. Then you have the Jordan River, which goes from the Sea of Galilee down into what we call a body of water, the Dead Sea. Why is it dead? Why is it called the Dead Sea? Because there's really nothing able to live in it. The salinity and the concentration of the minerals and the salt are so high that nothing can live there. It has an inlet but no outlet. Believers in Christ who become inlets with no outlet become dead. Do you hear me? What is the outlet we are to be about? Well, Jesus gave us a commission. Go make disciples. When we go, we become like the Sea of Galilee that has an inlet of fresh water and an outlet who's putting water down the stream. If we're taking in, we'll die if we're not giving out. I see a lot of dead Christians in the pews of our churches today who are taking, 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 consuming, consuming, consuming. We have obese believers in Christ who don't really believe the message of Christ because they're not willing to live that message out in their daily life. This is why many of our churches in our culture are dying or are dead today because they become inlets with no outlet or they become no inlet, no outlet, stagnant ponds of water. They're putrid to the nostrils of God, who in, who in Revelation 3 calls these lukewarm churches ones that he just wants to vomit out of his mouth. Respect involves lifting others up. It involves ex ex giving the good news to others. The best, again, the best respect we can give to anybody is to show them the love of Christ, whether they deserve it or not. One final thing before we close. Christians are to lift up their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is true, but they're also required to do so to those outside of, the, just outside of the church. This doesn't mean that they should compromise their faith and integrity. When Jesus went into the different towns ministering and healing, he never compromised the message that he came with. He didn't change the message of truth in order to try to reach everybody. He came with the message of truth knowing that if that couldn't change some, that was heartbreaking, but he could not be anything other than he wasn't. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He had to be the truth incarnate so others could see. He never turned a blind eye to sin. He called it out. But he called it out in a way that changed others. And those who wouldn't change walked away. And I have to, I have to think that those who walked away were painful for Jesus to see. The woman caught in the act of adultery thrown at Jesus' feet. 
should have been condemned to death by the law of Moses, but Jesus says, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. He confronted her with her sin and extended grace to her. That's love and respect. This is why Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. The reality is we all stand in fear of judgment because none of us are perfect. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. So we're all in some sense in a similar condition except for the fact those that are believers in Christ who've truly given their lives to him and are following him, obeying his teachings and commands are ones that are in a different boat and we're throwing out lifelines to the rest of the world saying, listen, this is what's going to save you. You can continue to flail out here. Your, your boat that you're in is sinking. And some are flailing in the water. We've got to lift others up. We've got to reach out to them. The golden rule is golden only when interpreted in light of the Christian context, not by a secularized abstraction. As our worship team comes forward, I've got a couple things I want to ask you this morning. Actually, a couple comments and a couple things I want to ask you. It's a there's a fascinating study on the principle of the golden rule that was conducted by a guy by the name of Bernard Rimland, who is the director of the Institute for Child Behavioral Research. Listen to what he writes. Rimland found, or listen to what the report says. Rimland found that the happiest people are those who help others. Each person involved in the study was asked to list 10 people they knew best and to label them as happy or not happy. Then they were to go through the list again and label each one as selfish or unselfish. Using the following definition of selfishness, which is this, a stable tendency to devote one's, life, or one's time and resources to one's own interests and welfare or an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. Oh, sorry, yeah, selfishness. A stable tendency to devote one's time and resources to one's own interests and welfare, an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. In categorizing the results, Rimland found that all of the people labeled happy were also labeled unselfish people. He wrote that those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. Rimlin concluded, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I see people searching for happiness, trying to fulfill deep needs in themselves, and they're searching in vain. This is going to make me happy. That's going to make me happy. And they're happy for a short stint until the newness of that thing wears off, and then they go back into a deep cycle of depression or frustration where they're discontent. You cannot be content apart from a love of God, first and foremost in your life. If what you're seeking does not align with his will for you based on his word, then you're, you're going to constantly be seeking to fill a void that is unfillable without Christ at the center. So many people thinking that things are going to make them happy or certain certain other conditions in their life have to be perfect to make them happy. I've lived now going on 47 years in this world, and I realize when I get discontent, it's because there's something wrong between me and God more than it is between me and my circumstances. 
And I've been around the block enough to know that I shouldn't change my circumstances necessarily to try to make me feel good unless I know that I'm content in Christ. How do I know where, whether it's the Holy Spirit convicting me to move and, and, and go somewhere else or do something else? Because I have to assess, if I leave my current situation and I go and do this because I think it's going to make me happier and I'm carrying the same baggage into that environment, I might feel okay for a season, but I've not dealt with the discontent here. And then I'm going to eventually be discontent here. Do, do you catch that? There are seasons in life when we're just discontent. And oftentimes we're driven by selfishness to get out of the discontent because we don't like sitting with it. It's not until we're completely surrendered in every facet of life to Christ, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, that the focus isn't on us as much as it is on him and them, that we realize, oh my goodness, I'm so much more fulfilled. I'm so much more fulfilled. We are a selfish people. The practice of patience involves the respectful treatment of others, not because they deserve it, but because God deserves that from us. And when we learn to respect and honor those who have been created in the image of God, we might then be able to see a glimpse of God we've never seen before. We might begin to live in such a way that others might see the living God through us. What's your respect level today? <laughs> Patience is one of the harder topics to talk about. And so is respect. What's your respect level, not only for God, but for those around you, whether they deserve it or not? Have you completely surrendered your life to Christ in every area? As Paul says in Romans, completely. Completely. Not letting sin control you, but doing the hard work of getting the sin out of your life by controlling it and casting it as far away from you as you can. Start with you before you start with anybody else. And if you realize today, after this message or later on, if something just triggers in you, oh my goodness, I have been very disrespectful in the way I've acted, treated, or behaved towards somebody else or to God. Make amends for it. Be reconciled to those who are in your path and in your life. Don't let another moment go by without restoration. And you, here's the thing. You can't make somebody live at peace with you. I've said this over and over and over again. But as much as it depends on you, Paul says, we are to live at peace with one another. You can't do something about somebody else, but you can always do something about you. That's why the golden rule is so important. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Our altars are always open. Those of you at home, you can pray anytime. But let it go. Step up to the plate. Do what's right, even when it's hard. 
Father, we love you. It's amazing how much you respect us. When we are the most disrespectful species on planet Earth, and yet you love the world so much that you gave us your son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It boggles the mind, the level of love and respect you have for us. Interestingly enough, Jesus, you did for us what you would have us to do for you. (laughs) Help us to do to others as we would have them to do for us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.